who shut in the sea with doors? Who said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? From the book of Job, Job, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. At some point, late in my high school years, I became obsessed with the sea. No doubt my growing up in landlocked rural Illinois had something to do with it. Feeling trapped in the world of Midwest farmland, I would daydream of someday moving to a cabin on the New England coast, strolling the lonely beaches on brisk gray autumn mornings, staring out into the infinite expanse of the Atlantic in contemplation. I was a very moody teenager, and I became a romantic about the sea. And my romance deepened even more, actually, when I moved to Chicago after high school. So Lake Michigan paled in comparison to the ocean, but it was at least a step above central Illinois' seas of corn and waves of grain. I spent many hours on the lakefront, reading Hemingway and Melville's stories about the wildlife of the sea, soaking up Carl Sandburg's vivid de descriptions of the beauty of the Great Lakes, and listening to Debussy's La Mer. I'm telling you, I was a very sensitive and sentimental young man. So I've, I've wondered often why I had such an interest in the aesthetics of the sea. It was probably that I was attracted to its melancholy in part, its seeming infinity, its kind of invitation to imagine faraway lands on its distant shores. For me, the sea was a symbol, which is why I actually always found my visits to the ocean quite disappointing, never really measuring up to the depictions of sea life in great literature and music. For the writers of sacred scripture and for the people whose world it describes, the sea was also a symbol with powerful and evocative meanings. But the biblical writers, like most people in the ancient world, had a much less romantic understanding of the meaning of the sea than I did. For them, the sea was a place of danger, of turmoil, of storm. The sea symbolized the forces of chaos and destruction which God the Creator had separated from the land and its habitation at creation. The sea reminded one of that to home described in the Genesis creation story, that primal sea or watery deep held back by God's firmament, which occasionally in times like the flood broke into the world to wreak devastation. So the sea for the biblical writers is a sign of chaos. I mean, did you hear how the sea was invoked in our readings this morning? In Job, the Lord recalls his laying the foundation of the earth and asked Job, who shut in the, deep, the sea with doors when it burst forth from its womb? Who said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. The sea seems to exist in a kind of perpetual storm and chaos. It's the sea which the psalmist declares the Lord exerts his power over controlling its stormy winds and stilling its waves. The sea stands in the backdrop and Jesus' healing of the Gerasene demoniac in our reading from 
uh, Mark's gospel this morning. When Christ casts out the unclean spirits from the man into the herd of pigs, they throw themselves into the sea and drown, the spirits of death returning to their dark, watery abyss. The sea, in the biblical story, is a sign of the powers of chaos which threaten to unravel the peaceful ordering of God's good creation, but over which the Lord of creation rules. So it's on to this sea, this sea of uncertainty and chaos and tumult, that St. Mark takes us in his gospel reading this morning. We're told that evening has come, darkness falls, and Jesus and the disciples are on their way across the Sea of Galilee when suddenly a great storm arises. The winds overcome those on board, waves break hard against the boat, and flooding is already underway. And just in case you had in mind that this might be just kind of small, common sea squall, note the disciples' reaction. They are confident that this is the end. They are going to perish. St. Mark is sparing in his use of details in this story. He doesn't tell us where Jesus and his disciples are going or why. I love Jesus' words here. On that day when evening had come, Mark tells us, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That's it. Now we find out, of course, in the passage that follows that the destination is Gentile territory, the land of the Gerasenes. For now, though, it's simply enough to call it the other side, the unknown, the unfamiliar, the place where we cannot expect what will happen next or how we will be received. Now, the church fathers took Mark's omission of details in this story to invite symbolic and allegorical interpretation. Because the boat, of course, a classic image of the church, which holds Christ in her stern, at the center of her life. The other side, the future, the church is continually called by God into the final redemption of all things. The sea, history, upon which the church sails, propelled by the Holy Spirit and steered by the apostles and their successors. And then, of course, the storm. There had been many storms in the church's past, and many more were to come. For the earliest Christians, probably Mark's readers, it was Nero, persecution, opposition. For later believers, it was heresy, political instability, barbarian invasions. The church is always finding herself in a new storm in every age, either sprung on her from the outside, hostility, oppression, or perhaps more the case these days, one's self-inflicted, hypocrisy, repression, scandal. Today, well, take your pick. I mean, certain sandals seem particularly relevant. Sexual abuse running rampant in the church, toxic and dangerous political entanglements, reproductions of the same racial and class divisions and injustices in Sunday mornings as in society at large. And we found ourselves in some serious storms. And you're not alone if you started to ask God do you not even care if we perish? 
And that's the response of the disciples, of course. They turn to Jesus, asleep in the stern of the boat, wake him up and exclaim, do you not care if we perish? Now that might seem a kind of insolent response on their part. My own thought is that is actually quite restrained because I think I would have just thrown something Jesus's way and yelled, wake up, do something. I mean, how can you be sleeping in the midst of all of this? Better once again, I think, to turn to the fathers instead. Happy Father's Day. In their wisdom, the fathers saw the sleeping Christ not as a picture of indifference to the disciples' plight, but rather it was a supreme declaration of our Lord's peace. It imaged forth the lordship of Christ over all creation. To sleep amidst the tempest declared the power of God. So Origen, for instance, called our Lord's sleep a holy quiet amidst the storm. St. Ephraim wrote that while the boat carried the sleeping Christ in his humanity, the Lord's divinity carried the boat itself, keeping it safe among the tumult and chaos. So the sleeping Christ, this image, already answers the question the disciples will ask after the miracle. Who then is this? They ask. It's the Lord of all creation, the one through whom all things were created and in whom all things find their being. Even the storms hold no power over this God-man even while he sleeps. And so while the storm rages on, he sleeps in holy quiet. And yet, the Lord Jesus does awaken and arises to calm his disciples' fears to declare his lordship to them Indeed, he rebukes the winds and declares peace, be still. He calms the raging sea and restores it to serene peace. He closes the doors of the sea. This is not just a miracle. It certainly is that. But more than that, this is a manifestation of Christ's identity. Because he does what only the creator God, the God of Israel, can do. He makes the storm to cease. He stills the winds of chaos and the waves of destruction. Just as the creator stilled the watery abyss and separated the waters in creation, so now the redeemer stills the storm in an act of new creation. It was in moments like these St. Maximus the Confessor claimed that we behold Christ's transfiguration of the world. He called it Christ's cosmic redemption. Even the wind and sea obey him, the disciples remark. They always did, Maximus assures, and they always will. The miracle upon the sea simply manifests what has been and will be universally and ontologically true of the whole creation, that Christ is its Lord and is working to bring all of it to complete redemption. The calming of this sea literalizes St. Paul's announcement in our reading from 2 Corinthians this morning that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This sea, this wind. These waves are now transfigured in Christ's saving reconciliation and thus make visible in this moment 
what will one day be true of all creation. It will be ordered in peace and restored in eternal rest. This miracle points toward the day when all storms will cease and obey the command of the Lord, peace be still. Day when he will finally close for good the doors of the sea and still every storm. It's a really nice morning out. It's a little hot, but it's pretty beautiful. And yet, a lot of us this morning, when we entered doors of the church, actually walked in from a raging storm. And most likely, when we leave here this morning, we'll be walking right back out into one. I don't know what your storm is. Maybe it's deep sorrow, or devastating loss, a whirlwind of anxiety, a thick fog of uncertainty and precarity, a deluge of tragedy after tragedy all around you. Maybe you or someone you know has just received an unexpected diagnosis, and you're bracing for a really long and harsh storm ahead. Maybe your home or your marriage feel like a raging storm right now. Maybe it did this morning. Maybe you're feeling anguish and distress from the chaos of the many, many injustices and wrongs circulating about you like a whirlwind. Or maybe that whirlwind is actually just inside your head and inside your chest, and no one else can really see it, but you're being thrown about and beaten down with waves of shame or regret or uncertainty or despair or self-hatred. Maybe you're right there with the disciples, in fact, saying, is this it? Are we to perish? Does the Lord even care? Is God asleep? If you're in a storm, I want you to hear clearly this message of hope. The Lord is in your boat. If you're facing loss or anxiety or suffering or despair or pain, you do not need an optimistic, trite assurance that everything will be all right, or that everything has a reason, or that good will come out of your ill. I think what you need is just a simple but true reminder that amidst this raging storm, the Almighty Lord is in your boat. The one who makes the storm to cease so that the waves are still, as the psalmist declares. The one who closes the doors of the sea, as the Lord says to Job, he's in your boat. And that's the most assuring and hopeful message I could possibly give you. Because it means this, that no matter how hard or long the storm rages, no matter how dark things get, no matter how close you feel like you're to sinking, the storm cannot overwhelm you because it cannot overwhelm the Lord who sits with you in it. The Lord is in your boat. The Lord of peace is in the midst of the storm. And he might stand up and rebuke the waves and calm it for you. Or he might not, at least not until that final day when all storms will cease and peace will reign on the earth. But either way, he's in your boat. 
And as long as he is in that boat, you will not go under. He will hold you and shelter you and see you to the other side of the sea, even when it rages, because the Lord is with us and he is our peace. Whether the doors of the sea be locked shut or swung wide open, he is our peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.